come from a land down under Bill, a colleague of yours that we've talked about a lot, uh, was recently interviewed about the Reasonable Faith animated video on the argument from fine-tuning. And he basically agrees with you, but offers some nuances. thought it was funny. I saw on Facebook, Bill, uh, a lot of people were talking about this interview, and they all said, Luke Barnes basically agrees with Dr. Craig. Uh, bottom line, but he is offering a few nuances. Yes. Talk a little bit about Luke Barnes before we go to this first clip. I first met Luke Barnes when I was in Australia on that debate tour with Lawrence Krauss, which took us to Sydney and Brisbane and Adelaide and Melbourne. And while I was in Sydney speaking at the university there, uh, this young man approached me and introduced himself, said, I'm Luke Barnes. I am an astrophysicist here at the University of Sydney, and I'm interested in your work and interested in some of these same questions. And we became friends and uh, began to then uh, correspond and collaborate over the years, and he's been a great help to me in my work on the fine-tuning argument in particular. In the Zangmeister animated video on the fine-tuning of the universe, Luke served as one of our scientific advisors for that video. It was he who checked the accuracy of all of the examples of fine-tuning that we give in the video, and so we owe him a real debt for his fine work. This video is from Jordan Hampton and his channel called The Analytic Christian. I want to give Jordan a shout out. Mm. In fact, he's been doing a series, Bill, uh, on you, uh, bringing in people to interact with uh, your work. Um, Four or five he's done. We'll we'll look at a couple in the next few weeks or so, uh, including the one today. And, you know, I want to point out, Bill, that these reasonable faith videos are designed to be brief overviews of the topics for the YouTube crowd. They're very good, the Zangmeister videos, but they're not hours long, exhaustive (laughs) treatments. I mean, that would be a long movie uh, on some of these topics. Luke Barnes acknowledges that in this interview. He said, look, this is a five minute video, but let's go to the first clip as they begin uh, interacting with that Reasonable Faith video. Here it is. Again, there's a couple of things I'd wanna uh nuance a little bit in the physics of it but mostly that's it's uh you know it's generally sort of roughly correct so so there are actually about 30 constants of nature in the best theories we have there's a core of about 10 and it's kind of a 10 that they showed there on screen actually rather than all of them and even within those 10 there are varying degrees of how much you can change it and still have a life permitting universe the video then zoomed in on a couple of the interesting ones um the strength of gravity if you remember that with the dial uh one part in 10 to the 60. uh that's an odd way to put it but that's you know sort of broadly correct basically the expansion of the universe at a very early stage has to be very close to being what's called um critical uh and so if you're a very small part this way it's expanding too fast and everything gets too far away from everything else and and structure doesn't form and the other way 
the universe doesn't expand fast enough, it recollapses. Bill, there's the opening intro there where he begins to talk about the those finely tuned constants in the universe. Yes. And what Luke says there is that the video basically underplays its case. He says the video mentions around 10 mm -hmm. of these examples of fine tuning, when in fact there are some 30 constants that require fine tuning to various degrees uh, that aren't even mentioned. And so that actually reinforces, I think, the strength of the, the video's conclusion and uh, gravitation that he mentions there is just one of these. If you alter the gravitational force marginally uh, by making it stronger, the whole universe would recollapse into a black hole. If you strengthen the force of gravity, then the universe will expand so quickly that stars and galaxies would never congeal and there would be no place for life. So the force of gravity in the early universe needs to be right at that critical uh, density level that will allow the universe to expand um, and not recollapse quickly, um, but long enough to form galaxies and stars where life can evolve and exist. Let's go to clip number two. He continues. Fine-tuning is about life-permitting universes relative to the total. So, of course, you know, on some level, of course, any universe is going to be unique and weird and rare. Uh, the question is not whether our universe is unique and weird and rare. It's whether a life-permitting universe is. And uh, so instead of uh, asking what's the bit of the total where our universe is or a universe which has that the sort of low entropy, the, the, the unlikeliness that we see around us, it's a question of how how finely does the, the creator have to point there? I've lost the, the, the other thing. Oh, there it is. Yeah, how finely does that need to happen? Not to hit our universe, but to hit a universe which can permit life. Yeah. Uh, and that number is still absurdly small um but you know 10 to the 10 to the 60 maybe i've seen some people estimate it to be that in that sort of ballpark nothing depends on it's not like you know 10 to the 10 to 123 and the argument's good but 10 to the 10 <laughs> to the 60 and it's no good but there's some interesting little uh details in in, in at least the physics of of what's presented there yeah, if the numbers are off a little bit, a few billion yeah. here or there, it's okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, and I think that the point that he's making is a very good one that I've made in my published work, is that the fine-tuning argument is not trying to explain why this universe exists, but why a life-permitting universe exists. And the analogy I love to give on this is a lottery in which a billion, billion, billion white ping pong balls are mixed together and one orange ping pong ball is thrown into the hoard. And then one ball is drawn randomly from the hoard. Now, whichever ball is drawn will be equally improbable. Uh, any ball, any particular ball is equally improbable. Nevertheless, it is overwhelmingly more probable that whichever ball is drawn, it will be white rather than orange. And that's the correct analogy for the probability of a life-permitting universe. We're not interested in why this particular universe was drawn. Rather, we're interested in why 
the universe that was drawn is a life-permitting rather than a life-prohibiting universe. And he continues. Here's another excerpt. Let's go to clip number three from Luke Barnes. So the three options are necessity, chance, and design. Um, the universe had to be life-permitting, or it could have been any old way and we just got lucky, or it, you know, someone ahead of time thought through which of the possibilities they wanted and chose this one because it's got some interesting stuff in it. Um, so let's go through those. Necessity. What I like about the presentation there is that that people take it for granted. Uh, this, when, whenever this option's thrown up there, it, it, I don't think people realize what an what a very it's a very extreme thing to think about the universe that it must have been life permitting, that it's impossible to, for a universe to be not life permitting. You know, you know, generations of atheists trying to tell us that it's just a typical universe. We're just the third rock around an average star and an average, you know, the outskirts of an average galaxy in a universe where there's all these galaxies. We're not at the center of anything. It's just, you know, life is just the sort of thing that matter does from time to time when it gets together. There's nothing particularly unique or special going on around here. This is a typical universe. And how do we, how do we, how do we weigh up those two options? And what fine tuning suggests is, well, let's go and make some other universes so we at least have an idea of what could have been. And a very mm -hmm. systematic and useful way to do that is not just to sort of imagine them, but let's take the laws of nature as we know them and change these constants a bit as a method of seeing what else, what could have been. This is why I like that the video is sort of presenting how extreme this, even if it's only in passing, how extreme this option is that you've got to say that life Something like life-permitting universes are inevitable. That life-prohibiting universes is impossible. You're in. You're not just in. Uh, you know, this theory explains the data better than that theory. You're now saying what's possible and what's impossible, and and all those sorts of things. Bill, there's an intro into the uh, the three parts: yes. uh, necessity, or chance, or design, and talks about necessity. He doesn't see how anybody could even believe. That. Yeah, I, this is just a, a very implausible um, alternative. What's important to understand is that in these fine-tuning discussions, scientists hold constant the laws of nature. And then what they alter is not the laws of nature. They alter the values of the constants and quantities that appear in the laws of nature. And those values are independent of the laws of nature. The laws of nature can describe a vast range of universes having different values of the fundamental constants and quantities. And so there's simply no ground at all for saying that the values of those constants and quantities are physically necessary. Uh, they're not. They're independent of nature's laws. Moreover, it's not just the constants that must be fine-tuned but these arbitrary quantities that are just put in at the beginning as initial conditions. For example, the ratio between matter and antimatter is just an arbitrary initial condition of the universe. And there's nothing in physics about laws of initial conditions that would mandate that these have to be a certain way. So the person who tries to say that the values of the constants and quantities are physically necessary 
is taking a, a very radical line for which there is no justification. Um, and so I think that's why this first possibility is not really taken seriously in cosmological discussions today. It's really the second alternative, the alternative of chance, uh, where the debate lies. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment, as Luke Barnes does. In this next clip, he mentions the atheist philosopher Graham Oppie. Here's mm. clip number four. So there, there is an approach to defending necessity, which I must admit I don't fully understand, but it's taken by Graham Oppie, who's an Australian philosopher of uh, religion and an atheist, uh, who, and my apologies that I'm probably not going to get this right, but his, his, his idea is basically we test, we've got this option of saying that something in our worldview is necessary. It just has to be that way. And that's a postulate we can make. And how do we know whether we're right or wrong about that postulate? Well, we can, we just test it according to what's the best explanation of the world around us. And so he would say, look, the idea that the, the fundamental properties of our universe are necessary like the mass of the electron, just is the best explanation for why th this universe is as it is. It sort of solves the fine-tuning problem by saying, sort of by fiat, by announcement, by declaration, that all those mm -hmm. other universes that you think are life-prohibiting, they're actually impossible. Now, he hasn't got any deeper reason for that. As a physicist, what I'd hope for, if you have some reason why the electron mass has to be what it is, what that means is you could sit down with pen and paper and mathematically derive what it is and tell us what, it's, what it is in terms of some sort of equation. He hasn't got anything like that. He's just got some this declaration, but this is the best way to explain the universe. I don't know what it is about these Australian guys, Bill. They sure are smart. <laughs> you know, Luke Barnes, yeah. Graham Oppie. Graham Oppie is a compatriot of Luke Barnes, but notice that... I said that cosmologists don't think that these values of the constants and quantities are physically necessary. But Graham Oppie, a philosopher, simply asserts that maybe they're metaphysically necessary, that the initial conditions of the universe are just metaphysically necessary and couldn't have been different. Now, as Barnes says, he has no justification for such an assertion. It's just a bare assertion without justification. And it seems to me to be enormously implausible. I, I think we have a very strong intuition of the contingency of the universe, that the universe didn't have to have these initial conditions. Scientists play with toy models of the universe all the time in which they vary the initial conditions or the laws of nature, as well as the fundamental constants and quantities. It, it just seems very intuitive that the universe is metaphysically contingent. But I think the real coup de grace for uh, this argument is that the universe had a beginning. If the universe began to exist, then it cannot be metaphysically necessary because a metaphysically necessary being must be an eternal being. It's impossible for it not to exist. And therefore, the very beginning of the universe, I think, shows that the universe is radically contingent. Uh, the only way I could think of for Oppie to avoid this problem would be to adopt what's called a tenseless theory of time, 
according to which temporal becoming is an illusion uh, of human beings. Uh, in fact, the universe did not come into being when it began to exist. The whole four-dimensional space-time continuum just exists tenselessly and metaphysically necessary. And that takes us into a totally different debate over competing theories of time. And many years ago, I realized that one's theory of time is vital for the uh, Kalam cosmological argument, um, which says that whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And therefore I devoted about 11 years to the study of the philosophy of time and God's relationship to time. And I argue at length uh, both for the tensed theory of time and against the tenseless theory of time. And so I think we have good reasons for rejecting Oppie's necessitism with respect to the beginning of the universe. That's necessity. Let's check out what Luke says about the chance alternative. And in this first clip, he begins to discuss the multiverse. Here it is. So generally, it starts off all right. Um, uh, just saying it, you know, we'll just take our chances. The, the probabilities here, if they are, you know, as fine-tuning thinks they are, then they are not fine-tunities. They're not probabilities to be messed with. Like there's no, I mean, I don't know how much of a convinced atheist you are. You're not that convinced that, you know, 10 to the 10 to the 123 or to 60 or 10 to the 120 or 10 to the 90 shouldn't start changing your mind about these sorts of things. So that's a good point. <laughs> so it then raises the multiverse. And there were sort of three points being made there. The first is that there's no evidence for the multiverse. And again, I think the reply would be the same maneuver that's made that could that sort of Oppie tries to make, which is to say fine tuning itself is evidence for the multiverse. Uh, you know, if the multiverse oh. is correct, then that would explain why our universe exists with the right set of constants for life, because there's possibilities all over the place, and why we observe such a universe, because there's no one around observing all the dead universes. Uh, and so Could the, we pause at the, that point, Kevin? Yeah, go ahead. Let, let's pause at this point and, and respond to that first argument. Um, the problem with appealing to the fine-tuning as evidence for a multiverse is that the fine-tuning is equally evidence for the existence of a designer. Uh, and so it's, it's a wash. What the video means when it says there's no evidence for a multiverse, it means there is no independent evidence. Um, whereas in the case of God, we do have independent evidence for the existence of a transcendent creator and designer of the universe. Leibniz's argument from contingency, the Kalam cosmological argument, Wigner's argument from the applicability of mathematics, the moral argument, so that the theism is not simply dependent upon fine-tuning, but it enjoys independent arguments for its reality, uh, arguments which uh, the multiverse does not share. I think Luke recognizes that. Listen to uh, the continuation of the clip. Fine-tuning. If fine-tuning can be used as evidence for God, it can be used as evidence for the multiverse. 
the fact that the multiverse explains it would 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 provide that sort of evidence. I think Craig's reply again to that would be: for God, we have independent forms of evidence in the form of the other arguments, whereas for the multiverse, we've got nothing. <laughs> well, he predicts your reply. Yeah, I shouldn't have interrupted you, Kevin. No, that, that's fine. You know, we, we needed exactly it. These, these clips right. can be kind of long, so uh, interrupt when you need to. But uh, well, it was so it was so delicious. I just had to yeah. say something. <laughs> uh, Barnes, I think, correctly anticipated my response. Okay. Next, he addresses the multiverse generator as he continues to talk about chance. Here's hmm. the next clip. In a particular universe, someone was able to measure the mass of the electron in their own universe. What are they likely to observe? And then you've got a prediction for what we should observe. You should be able to do that with the fundamental constants, with you know the, the multiverse theories. The fact that we really can't sort of tells you that a lot of these ideas are kind of toy ideas, but at least there's that possibility. There's, a, there's another quick one they squeeze in just before the Boltzmann brain one. If they say if the, the, there's... If there is a universe generator, then the generator would have to be fine-tuned. And I think that's a very good point. The problem is we don't have... When we say other laws of physics fine-tuned, other constants of nature fine-tuned, we have the standard model of particle physics, standard model of cosmology, and we can ask the question... That there's a definite thing that everyone's looking at. When you say the multiverse, it's not really one thing. It's sort of an idea that there's different ways it might happen so there's not really the generator and then we can go and all look at the generator and see whether it's fine-tuned itself there's a whole bunch of like toy models if you like a couple of things there bill when he says toy models or toy ideas do you think he means that they're novel or speculative or kind of wild is that what he means they are overly simple they're simplistic and therefore cannot be realistic descriptions. That's the sense in which these are just toy models of the universe. And in his published scientific articles, in journals, uh, Luke Barnes has been uh, relentless in pursuing this uh, criticism that, that these multiverse theories are incomplete, they are unspecified, they don't provide any realistic model of how a multiverse might exist that would explain the fine-tuning. And, and he says, until they offer this, um, there, there's just no credibility to these multiverse uh, theories. Yeah, and he says that we really just don't have a bead on them. Uh, in order to test some of these things, we just don't have that for a, the multiverse or a multiverse generator. Which, which model are you going to talk about? Which... Uh, um, which version are you going to talk about? He seems he says it's kind of vague. Yes, and and notice that if the proponent of the chance hypothesis is to carry the day for his explanation, he needs to show that the multiverse hypothesis will be free of any fine tuning, that none of its constants and quantities are finely tuned, because if they are. He hasn't succeeded in explaining it. And so he has a real burden of proof uh, to sustain if he's to put his explanation forward as the best. Then he touches on the Boltzmann brain problem in this next clip. Listen to this. The Boltzmann brain one, the video makes this point quite well. A smaller 
amount of order is more likely than a large amount of order. If the multiverse generator is the kind of place that is more likely to make small amounts of order than large amounts, in particular, if the way you get a big bit of order is just by getting lots of little bits of order, then it's much more likely than any any observer in that universe says, oh, you know, I'm I'm just a brain. There's there's literally chaos like two centimeters outside of my <laughs> brain cavity. I'll you know I'm probably going to hang around for about three seconds. So thanks for asking. Rather than this thing we see, where there's just order from one end of the universe to the other, ninety billion light years of galaxies and stars and planets and 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 you know in particular stars that have such useful energy for billions of years, all that sort of stuff. That's the Boltzmann brain problem. It, it's a very common failed prediction of a multiverse theory that it would predict that an observer should see a small amount of order around them rather than, you know, the, the universe we see around us. So again, the problem is, are all multiverse theories inflicted by the Boltzmann brain problem? And the reason we don't know that is because there's no, again, there's no one thing we're all looking at. There's no one multiverse idea that we can say, does this idea, if you if you make a specific model, a specific prediction, a specific idea about the multiverse and say, here you go, make some predictions, then we can answer that question. But while it's just this sort of vague, oh, maybe a bit of inflation and some string theory comes along, even though no one really knows how string theory works, then you can't answer these sort of questions to know whether inflation is fine-tuned. So whether the multiverse itself is fine-tuned and whether it suffers from a Boltzmann brain problem, although the Boltzmann brain problem does seem to be extremely general. Bill, I'm finally starting to understand the Boltzmann brain problem. So if there's anybody listening or watching who doesn't get it yet, you're in good company. But keep on studying it because I think yeah. it's fascinating. And yeah. when he says that it's, it, it seems to be general, uh, yes. does that mean that it could cover... Uh, a host of these multiverse, uh, That's uh, right. if not all of them. That's right, Kevin. Uh, and so this, I think, is a potentially fatal uh, objection to using multiverse hypotheses to explain away the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, and even if uh, you cannot show that most of the observable universes in the multiverse would be Boltzmann brain worlds, and that therefore I am a Boltzmann brain, you can put the conclusion negatively. Namely, the multiverse proponent cannot prove that we are not Boltzmann brains with mere illusions of the world around us. Uh, he cannot prove that we are ordinary observers who are sensing an external world. In other words, the Boltzmann brain problem uh, leads to a radical skepticism, which would leave us without any knowledge of the external world. And so whether you state the problem positively, that it implies that we are Boltzmann brains, or you just state it negatively, that it does not show that we are not Boltzmann brains, either way, this is a deadly objection to the multiverse hypothesis as an explanation of fine-tuning. You know, this interview is over an hour long, and we've just looked at some excerpts here, Bill. Mm. And finally, 
Uh, Jordan, ask him one more question. Here's number five. All right. I think that covered the video, basically. So once you knock out necessity, chance, all that's left in uh, as an option is design. What do, what do you think about that move? It, it, are those the only three options, or should there be more? Or I think that's about right. So there you go. <laughs> he says, that's right. We'll, yes, we'll for, take that. Bill, your summary. For anybody who knows the scientific literature yeah. on fine-tuning, you will recognize that there are three live options to explain it. Physical necessity, chance, or design. And I think the evidence weighs heavily against both physical necessity and chance, which means that design is the best explanation unless it can be shown to be just as implausible as the other two. And then here, the defender of design would need to defend that against potential objections to the design hypothesis.